Yeah, Vaughn? forever um i don't know if you if you recall this or if you knew this all along i i didn't realize welcome to two twins an album by the way i didn't realize that that was um freedom the wham song until like maybe like five years ago it's like okay because that organ intro um and welcome to episode heinz 57 by the way as well yeah yeah. You know, that intro was so iconic because of the video, you know, and all that, that you just kind of like thought it was this. And and it does remind you a little bit of Dearly Beloved, you know, the, the Let's Go Crazy Prince intro. Yeah. Which which came first? Because it's a little um, eerie that two 80s monster albums and hits both started pretty much the same way. Oh, Prince's had to come earlier because this was this was later in the decade. So it, it, it had to be Prince. But so we got, so let's just make this clear because it's going to set up maybe another theme later in the show. So George Michael clearly ripped off Prince here, right? <laughs> a little bit. Um, Church organ intro, dramatic, you know, starter. It could be argued. It could be argued. Because, yeah, this was about three years after Prince did it. And then Prince came in. How about you and your friends versus me and the revolution? <laughs> And then he served us pancakes. Let's run a play. Pancakes. Darling Nikki, Computer Blue. Computer Blue. <laughs> What's better? Why don't you go immerse yourselves in the, river, in, in the rivers of Lake Minnetonka? Why don't you go purify yourself? Purify yourself. <laughs> of Lake Minnetonka. <laughs> so crew brilliant. Of, crew of flunkies. What's better, the Chappelle Rick James, the Chappelle Prince, or underrated, the Chappelle R. Kelly? I'm going to piss on you. What do you, what do you. What's your favorite of the three? All strong in their own ways. First of all, it's a great argument. I've had this many times. Usually the first off the island for me would be Rick James. Ah. It's, it's so incredible. But I think that the lines from it became maybe too much part of the lexicon, right? right. Like, yeah. And even some of like cocaine's a hell of a drug. Like some of the lines became so familiar that they lost a little bit of their edginess. So I would say that the Rick James one will be the first one to go. And then it's okay. down to two, you know, completely unique, different, but, but similar in the fact that they are just so genius yeah. in what Chappelle knew he was able to do. So I personally think the Prince one is the best. I think it's, it's the best, yeah. you know, it's the best visually. Yeah. It's the smartest. It's got some like deeper references in it, you know. And Chappelle's kind of physical performance as Prince is incredible. I mean, it's just it so is. good. It but is. you know, the R. Kelly, I'm gonna piss on you, is is so good. I mean, I you know, I watched it the other day for the first time in maybe like a couple of years, which is longer than I should go without watching it. And I just died. It was just I mean, it's just so great. Drip, 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 you know. I mean, it's just so good. 
I mean, how amazing was that show just in general? Yeah. You know, it was so fun. Yeah. It was it was pretty special. His last couple stand-up specials are Oh, the juicy smoothie, the juicy smoothie routine is one of the best (laughs) things comedy's done in the last couple of years. Totally. Yeah. The the French actor, you know, he's the greatest man. Yeah. So good. So are you ready to talk about Giorgio's Curiosos Penelayato? You know, I've learned a couple of things already. I I did know that that, that he had a different name than George Michael. I didn't realize it was (laughs) clearly a Greek name, right? Yeah. I assume he's Greek. Yeah. And then, uh, so freedom was originally a wham song. Cause I only know freedom 90, which is right. by George Michael. So yes. what's the, is the original freedom. It wasn't as good as freedom 90. Cause freedom 90 is a pretty big hit. Well, freedom 90 was really like, it was like very George Michael was very like sexy and sort of, uh, you know, like a dance ish track type thing. Yeah. And, uh, the original freedom was a, like a, it was more of like a bubblegum song. It was the, dun, 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 oh, dun. really? Oh. I don't want your freedom. I don't need to. Oh yeah. Okay. I've heard that. I don't want no, hang on. I'm on fire. Baby. Part-time love just brings me down. Yeah. So, so yeah, it was the, it was a very poppy, very up, up tempo poppy song by Wham. So, you know, they had Wake Me Up Before You Go-Go and um, Freedom were kind of their poppy, up-tempo tracks. But the one that really, you know, I think brought the house down was Careless Whisper. You know, one of the great saxophone tracks of our time. Probably the most iconic saxophone song besides maybe Baker Street. I, I think those two are probably in a league of their own. Is that is that the... Uh, dee, 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 dee. Yeah, exactly. Straight up Skinamax right there. Yeah. And <laughs> I tell you what, you try to sing that song without shedding a tear. Yeah. See, you think shed a tear. I see that more of like a uh, 80s mom uh, uh, get, get in the mood sort of song. You know what I mean? But that's the way I see it. Is that like an, Al, like an Alan Aldman track? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Definitely. Like, definitely a pillow talk track. No doubt. Yeah. 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 Here's, or, you know, the, here is Careless Whisper by Wham. Yeah. Go deleted. Everyone just gets all excited. And all the, all the, all the, you know, middle-aged women just get all revved up, you know? <laughs> yeah. Right. Exactly. That, yeah. That's how I remember that song more than, uh, more than emotional, but who knows, man, maybe people cried to it. Maybe they did both. I don't know. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> you know? Right. Yeah. I guess that's possible. You know, what's, what's interesting, Nub, there's only one episode we've done. That has sold more records than this. Do you know what it is? Well, I, I, I didn't realize our episodes were that successful, but that's good to hear. I'm glad to hear that our episodes are selling that many copies. <laughs> no, the album, the album, not the oh, episode, the, album. Yeah. Oh, yeah. the album. This, this podcast is the most unlucrative thing uh, <laughs> right. that, ex- yeah. that yeah. exists in it's the music. It's reverse scene. lucrative. If that's you right. Will. Yes. It's a cost center, not a uh, <laughs> yeah, right. revenue generator. Yeah. Okay. So there's an album we did that sold more than Wham. There's only one record we've done in our previous episodes that had sold more than not wham sold more than tonight's record. Well, it had to come during like a very successful time just in the industry. You know, we've, we've covered a few things that were too early to sell that many. And then we've covered some things that were too late to sell that many. I really think you've got this one. I mean, you, you haven't been terribly good on the uh, trivia of late. I, yeah, I, I really think you got this one. I do. 
last couple of trivia things have been tough. Well, it's got to be probably something really pop and mainstream. I mean, take your time. You know, no, no rush or anything. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I'm going through the Rolodex right now. <laughs> I'm assuming it was not King Crimson's Red. <laughs> <laughs> All right. It was Jagged Little Pill. Yeah. Yeah. Jagged Little Pill sold 33 million. And this one did a measly 25. So uh, can you believe how many records these guys used to sell? It's incredible. You compare it to right now. You know, it's just absurd. But, uh, but Hey, before we get to that, let's see if the uh, LPs you've been listening to have sold. Well, maybe they have, maybe they haven't. Let's go round and round. Nubbins, what has been round and round for you, buddy? Take it away. So it's not common that you would have, uh, you know, two weeks in a row where there's the same artist on round and round, but it's not common that the artist would release, basically release two albums within a year. And so uh, Ryan Adams, Big Colors, which is now this is the electric album. So he did Wednesdays, which is the Sad Bastard album. Then he just digitally released, but, you know, there's a vinyl copy on its way at some point, which is the, the electric album that was going to come out before he hit all of his troubles. And that is big colors and listened to it this past weekend and really enjoyed it. It's, it's him being more of a rock and roller than a sad guy with a guitar. And it's very, very good. And I look forward to continue to digging into it, kind of thinking, well, I wonder if there's gonna be a tour there. You just wonder who's going to tour again. Who's not. He's in a little bit more of a complex situation. So who knows? I, I hope he goes on tour. I've been, I've, I've, I really hope he does. You can't wait. Yeah. So I, can, uh, so I can not go. Yeah, right. Exactly. <laughs> Next is that, you know, very short title for an album. You walked up shaking in your boots, but you stood tall enough to Raging Bull. You did this one previously. <laughs> this is Humphreys McGee with the album full of instrumentals. What do you think of it? You, you think it's cool that they did the, uh, the walkout songs in the studio? I think conceptually, it's super cool that they did it. It's, it's neat to hear the songs in the studio context. I also will tell you that it's not as good. None of the, none of the versions are as good as what they do live. Maybe with the exception of October rain, October rain is just so, you know, fantastic that it gets pulled off very, very well in the studio. The others sound just a little sterile in the studio after you see them all live. Cause you know, I'm sure you've seen all of these played live. I've seen a number of them. And so, yeah, it, it's, it's a cool listen for a fan. I'm sure that a non Humphreys fan would buy this and be incredibly confused, you know, by the whole ordeal. That's yeah. part of what I think is cool about it is it's, you know, it's, it, this is for the, I feel like this is for the fans that really like their music that don't just want to go to their shows and spin around with glow sticks. You know, this is like kind of their, I think this is catered for sort of their like, musician ish audience, which I think is kind of cool. That's a great call. Yeah. Agreed. And anything that Umphreys can do to, to try and not cater to, but, but try and connect and stay connected with that group of the audience would be really good because there's a whole lot of people out there, us both included that love this band because of their musicianship and not necessarily because of glow sticks. So yeah, but I've been listening to it a lot. There's a lot to dive into there. And then Lastly is uh, a more obscure album that I just got on vinyl, which is the album is called S Scenes by a band called uh, Godic. And this is from 1978. It's a Spain-based band. 
this is considered one of those one-off, you know, legendary progressive rock albums. It's all instrumental and the musicianship is just out of this world. And it's a really, really good listen. It's one of those things that, you know, is not, it's not even underrated. It's just overlooked, but it's got beautiful cover art and it's just a really, really nice album. So yeah, go to Essenes. And that, that's what's running around for me, T. What, uh, what's spinning around for you these days? Well, I got actually a couple of new things here. The first is, uh, I was just listening to it yesterday, the new album by The Killers, and it's called Pressure Machine. And, you know, I, I love what these guys do musically, but I got to say the, the lyrics of this are very distracting. I mean, so Brandon Flowers, I Wait a minute, think you're, you're listening to lyrics. Now? Yeah. Well, yeah. Oh. It's so, so Brandon Flowers to me is a very intriguing artist and obviously has produced some good. And I think in many ways, fairly important work sort of to the mainstream for the last, you know, almost 20 years, I think it's been. And, you know, he, they're this interesting, I mean, they're from Las Vegas that he has this fascination with, uh, Americana, you know, and they did this, this record in the, I think it was the early two thousands that a lot of people are familiar with called Sam's town, which I thought was a phenomenal record. And it, it, you know, it was a little bit conceptual in that it was themed around kind of small town Americana and a lot of different stories and themes and, and interesting. Well, this album pressure machine is like essentially running the exact same play, except more direct and more obvious. I don't know if it's a story or if it's just a concept, but it's sort of picking apart life in West Texas. And there are sound bites from real people. And then like every song you know, the, the lyrics in the, in the vocals as per usual with the killers are very pronounced. And like every song is about like somebody in a small town, like everyone. And it's like, it, it kind of like gets annoying after a while, you know? So it's like, this is very unusual for me, but it kind of distracted me from what was going on musically that there was this like repetitive, almost sort of annoying, like repetition around small town Americana, West Texas going on throughout this album. I don't know. I, I'm trying to put that aside and understand what they're trying to do musically. And it's fine. It sounds good, but yeah, that was, it's an interesting deal on the deal here. The second is, uh, from a band that I really love, um, kind of a newer band called churches with a V and this is sort of an electronic uh, type of group, but I, I, they've put out really good stuff. And they have a new record called Screen Violence, which I haven't heard yet. And the third is, it's not new, but it's new to me. I didn't realize that The Darkness had put out a live album a few years ago, you know, live at the uh, Hammersmith. And uh, it's cool, man. Have you heard it? They, they're, they're a cool live band. I mean, sometimes you wonder if they're able to get out there and pull it off audibly you know the way that uh obviously because you know doing some of what they do is not terribly easy but it, it it sounds great it's a great live uh capturing of that band i mean i can only best answer by saying no i've not heard it no no no, i've not heard it yeah <laughs> i have not heard the live album no i haven't heard the live album but i'm sure it sounds good well you should hear it it's pretty sweet um and, uh, you know, something that I didn't even know existed until fairly recently picked it up and I am, uh, 
quite liking it. You know, another record that many people decided to uh, pick up and enjoy is uh, tonight's featured selection. You know, one of the things that uh, I kind of realized, Nub, uh, you know, this is episode uh, Heinz 57 here. We really haven't done that ma- that many uh, dead people, if you think about it. I mean, we did The Doors, you know? Yeah. And uh, we did, you know, Typo, and Peter died, but everyone else is still kicking. Well, but, they did uh, Nirvana. We did Kurt, Nirvana. Kurt's dead. I don't know if you heard that. Kurt's dead. That's That's yeah. a fact. Other than that, most of the artists we've done are, you know, still around to tell the tale. So it's kind of unique. I, I actually had kind of for, you know, there are some, there are some people that you sort of need to still like double check. It's like, you know, it's like, I think they're dead, but I'm going to double check this just to make sure. And I, I got to be honest for me, George Michael was one of those. It was like, I think he died and it was in, it was in, it was actually on Christmas day, um, which is ironic because of the last Christmas, you know, single of 2016. And I don't know that a, uh, I know that there was a um, physiological cause of death released. I assume this had to do with, you know, years of abuse um, because he was only 53 and you know, died due to kind of heart and liver um, issues, which I, I believe came with, I mean, this guy had, had a pretty hard back half of his life. It was, you know, it was riddled with, uh, you know, scandal and drama and rehab and, you know, all kinds of issues. I, I don't think that he was a guy that never um, seemed like happy. I mean, we'll talk about this when we get yeah. into the chart by chart, but he never seemed like a like he in, ever enjoyed success. Yeah. Um, you know, just complicated, I would say. Very. And, and, you know, the more you dig into it and I kind of, you know, breathed on it earlier, but you know, he was an artist. I mean, he was a, you know, he wrote all of his songs and I, when I first listened to this record, it's sort of in, in preparation. Um, and it had been a while since I had gone top to bottom on it. The first thing that jumped out at me was, wow, this album is really like almost perfectly produced for its time. And you're like, this must have been, you know, one of the, you know, labels, finest producers and, you know, one of those pop producers that um, was kicking out, you know, all these gems at this time. And you look at who produced the record and it was George Michael. It's like, wow. I mean, so there is no question that this guy was talented. And I think, you know, a lot of times you think of, you know, a guy like George Michael and you put him in with uh, some of these other more fabricated produced, um, you know, pop stars that had people writing for them and people recording for them and, you know, people producing for them and people telling them how to do X, Y, and Z in order to, sell an album of this magnitude and and create an album of this magnitude. He didn't really have that. You know, he was a guy that could create, that could compose. And it kind of makes tonight's album an interesting one to discuss because at a glance, you'd think that it was something that was, um, you know, sort of created in a lab as many albums of this nature are, but this wasn't. You know, this was an artist, you know, um, output that 
certainly was created in a brilliant way at the time that caught on worldwide in a way that few other albums have. And it really was because of this one single artist. Yeah, it's an interesting uh, story for sure. And I'm sure we'll get into it in the nerdy deets. I think when you go back and listen to it, it's, it's just the, the success of it was so huge and it's so absent from our modern times. You know, this, this single album from, you know, a, a relatively new solo artist that just had all of these hits, you know, and you, you make this assumption. I think you make a good, really important point about that. He was an artist because you make this assumption that he was, you know, record label created or that he had teams of songwriters that were doing everything And this album. I mean, there's a lot of musicians, but he's right there in it. And that gives it a lot of credibility. I think particularly for somebody who is not, not necessarily revered as a vocalist. And that's one of the things that we'll talk about. Like was George Michael a good singer? Cause mm-hmm. I'm not totally convinced sometimes that he was, he wasn't bad by any means, but it's interesting to think about the role of image, the role of sexiness, uh, the controversy, because this album clearly is one of the early-ish examples of the more controversial, the better. And it aligned him with Madonna much more than, you know, right. let's say other musicians who were more credible as musicians, which is interesting because right. he's really right. not like Madonna at all in any way. Yeah. Indeed. I, I mean, there's a song on here, we'll get to it, where you've got to be insane to question his vocal prowess after hearing it but we'll get to it why don't we first tackle those nerdy deets you want some dirty deets yeah you want some dirty deets all right faith was released on october 30th 1987 it was the first solo album from george michael the previous co co frontman although i don't know was he really the frontman of Wham. What did Andrew Ridgely do, by the way? Was he a... He's a race car driver or something, right? <laughs> now? Yeah, I, I, th- I think that. I think so. Wasn't but- he always and like dabbled in music? And then after Wham broke up, I think he actually like got seriously back into race car driving. Oh, really? Uh, from what I understand, it was pretty... I mean, you have to look it up, but I just remember this. I, I think he was yeah. like a pretty good race car driver or something. Interesting. Like yeah, I don't know. Well, I mean, he was also a pretty good first officer i suppose although i don't really know i guess i should have done more research on what andrew ridgely actually did for wham i I know he wrote some songs with george michael so maybe it was a true collaboration but i think he was really photogenic and had great hair yeah (laughs) i think that had a lot to do with it that was definitely a strength um but you know obviously uh you know george michael came on to the scene you know as the face and voice of of the band wham uh, and then this uh, was his first solo effort. This was uh, on Columbia Records, uh, produced, as I mentioned, by George Michael, written by George Michael. There's only one song that actually has a co-writing credit. So clearly, you know, he drove the ship in terms of this entire output, which is impressive. Uh, nine tracks, you know, quick and to the point. Uh, the CD version. Uh, does have uh, as if the first two weren't enough. You got a third part of "I Want Your Sex." I want your sex part three, and uh, can't wait to get to that one. But that was on the CD version as kind of a bonus cut. But the 
you know, main sort of original LP uh, uh, consists of the nine tracks. And I, I like how it's quick and to the point. I mean, clearly I'm a little bit more in the camp of, you know, a shorter, it's almost revolver-esque in that a shorter record can sometimes be, you know, much more efficient and much more uh, easy to take in than those that tried to pile on 14 tracks just for the sake of it. It has the rare distinction of being certified diamond, uh, over 25 million copies worldwide. So, you know, you're getting into a pretty elite company there of, you know, a couple, three handfuls of, of albums that have reached that distinction. Uh, won the Grammy for album of the year. So George Michael did not have to give the Grammy back now. He was actually able to uh, keep it. And, uh, you know, for the uh, top album of the year, not terribly surprising that that was the case in 87. And uh, the great Rolling Stone, which neither of us pay a lot of attention to, um, rated Faith as the uh, 151st greatest album of all time. So, you know, I think what'll be interesting uh, today, Nubs, is clearly this album was commercial and clearly it was acclaimed. But I think what we're going to decide is um, why was that the case? And uh, was it good? Or did it just hit at the right time? I think that's one of the interesting assessments with a, a record like Faith. That all sounds lovely. Uh, I think the big part of the nerdy deeds that stands out is the musicians. You know, you look at the list of people that played on this and it is vast, but a lot of kind of specialized performances. The biggest key is George Michael contributing musically to this. I think he played drums on one song, which is kind of cool. A lot of keyboards. And clearly he had a strong hand. Not, he was not a bystander. He had a strong hand and the, the sound, the textures. Strong hand and boy, what an ass, huh? I mean, <laughs> oh, great ass. What a, what a caboose on that guy. Jeez. Great caboose. Fantastic. Great beard. Good hair. Yeah. Like he, nice. he was kind of, he maybe was like the first to really rock that like thin kind of sexy beard. Stubble, the stubble. Yeah. The, the, the dangling earring. It's getting hot in here. Yeah, absolutely. So, <laughs> well, speaking of complex people, Nubs, let's get to your wonder story. Nubs, George Michael, let us have it. What do you remember, buddy? <laughs> so weird to talk about. So we've talked about our mom before. Right. She took us to Woodstock 94 and really was supportive of our, our music, our musical endeavors. Yeah. But she also, she probably wouldn't admit this today, but she had like pretty cutting edge music taste for a mom. You know, yeah. just, she was mm -hmm. very current. And I never quite understood why she liked what she liked, but she liked a lot of stuff that was more, much more modern than what her, her colleagues in motherhood may have been listening to. <laughs> colleagues. Yeah. One of those, her, pe her peers in yeah, motherhood. I like yeah. colleagues. I like colleagues. <laughs> yeah, I do too. Great, great word. Uh, <laughs> she had a rather modest, but really effective collection of seven inch singles. Most of them in picture sleeves. She had this rack. Remember that metal rack that we used to pull out? Yeah. And kind of, uh, yeah. And she probably had like 50 singles. And this was with the little yellow plastic thing that you'd put in the middle of the 45. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So that it would fit on the turn to yeah. yeah, it was like, it's funny you mentioned that because it was before the, the industry, the vinyl industry, like kind of said, 
You know, we could just put in those small holes in the seven <laughs> Yeah, exactly. Okay. You know? Yeah. Who are the ad wizards who came up with that idea? Yeah. Right? Yeah. I remember like jukeboxes <laughs> all over the world were futzing around with this large hole thing. And it's like, you know, you can just put the regular hole in there. Okay. <laughs> right. <laughs> actually, jukeboxes might be why they had the probably, larger hole. Probably cut, cut you down on some costs, actually. You only need one poke, you know? Well, exactly. Yeah. So she had, yes, owner of a lonely heart. She had a bunch of other like 80s pop things but the one i remember the most was she had the seven inch of george michael i want your sex <laughs> but sure i remember well, she sure did you know we're yeah. like six years old or whatever and she's like <laughs> jamming this throughout the house and you wonder why we're so troubled yeah, yeah right exactly dude exactly but the thing that was the sticking point there was that the radio version was I want your love. You know, <laughs> right. Yeah. It. Yes. Yes. And I remember when I was young going to my mom and being like, wait a minute. Like the one I hear on, on the radio is I want your love. And the other one says a different word. And like, what is this all about? And like, I have to credit George Michael for me, maybe learning about the birds and the bees because my uh, inquiry, oh right. <laughs> I know my inquiry of like, what is this song and what does it mean? I think jump started uh, some rather important conversations that uh, what one can have in their life. So that song was like my first experience with that word. And what, like, what is sex? What does he mean by that? Cause I remember being really confused. It's like, what does he mean? I want your sex. Yeah. It was you like, know? you knew, you knew that it was, you knew it was something. dirty. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 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 You knew that it was something Randy, but you didn't, I mean, we were seven. You didn't know fully what was going on and Correct. uh it led to more questions than answers let's just put it that way <laughs> kind of still does even to this day but yeah yeah it's, right it's really did at the time yeah yeah and then there was like a there was a year 87 88 you know kind of around that time where like george michael was like it i mean it was because you look at the run of singles on this album i remember you know father we'll talk about him of course father figure the video I was, I was very startled by that. The videos are definitely a big part of this one, you know, in terms of the imagery and the recollection, you know, huge, huge. So here's this guy. He's talking about, I want your sex and father figure and monkey. This stuff was really heavy for <laughs> a seven year old man. I'm just trying to figure out how to add, you know, three and five and Pop culture is flooded with this guy wearing a cross earring who's talking about father figure and shit. And I'm just like, huh? Like, you know, I was very interested, but also maybe a little scared for like a, <laughs> like a little intimidated. It's like, this is really adult, you know? Yeah. Like, yeah, it's true. And, it's true. and I think that's the thing to you. It's like, this was an era and we're in a similar era now where pop stars are really catering towards like teenagers and younger, right? Like, Look at the K-pop movement right now and everything that's going on. It's all catered towards like elementary, middle school age kids. George Michael was a young pop star, but his music was so adult, even yeah. more, even more so in some ways than Madonna, I yeah. would say, you know, yeah. in some ways, Madonna found a way to become adult real fast, but it, it was heavy. It was, these were like big time adultish themes. And I was, well, you know, and part of that too was, you know, wham, Wham was essentially like a boy band, you know, in terms yeah, of yeah. the type of music they were doing. I mean, I obviously didn't sound like a, you know, like an early 2000s boy band, but it certainly sounded like a late 80s boy band, even though there were only two of them. 
and it was pretty bubblegummy and pretty upbeat and pretty um, sort of conservative in a way. And, you know, you can tell that part of, and again, you, you know, you got to credit him for this more so than somebody trying to polish his image. It was like, all right, we're going to go edgy and we're not, we're not going to, you know, half ass it. Right. We're, we're going to, we're going to full asset in tight jeans is what we're going to do. <laughs> yeah. That's what they should have called the album, dude. Full ass and tight jeans. <laughs> yeah. It would have worked. Yeah. I don't know if you're going to go with this one too, but it's just another funny George Michael thing was when we were in high school, th- there was a presentation that was made at some point that was trying to scare everyone into not listening to popular music, you know? And I remember one of the examples was George Michael, but it wasn't off faith. It was, it was this song called fast love that was off one of his later albums. And this teacher was like playing these music videos <laughs> as an example of like, this is That's you funny. I, to. I totally forgot about that. That's great. Yeah. And the teacher, uh, there's a whole, you know, a whole saga behind the whole thing, but this teacher was kind of a, he kind of a nerdy voice. So he's just like, he's doing like a voiceover while we're watching this video. <laughs> And all I'm thinking the whole time was, oh, this this new George Michael song. Cool. I, I get to hear this in school. But he was like <laughs> voicing over like, George Michael. Or, you know, it's the nerdy of ours. George Michael, you know, this guy, is, you know, and he goes on and all this, all this stuff about George Michael. And why that, he's sounds, devil. that sounds exactly like this teacher. <laughs> <laughs> but I just, and that was kind of a later memory that I still think about. It's like, oh yeah, George Michael, the guy that did that song in the 90s that nobody cared about that was used as an example for us not to listen to all the things we constantly listen to. That's funny. Well, and I do, I think George Michael made an appearance in hell's bells, the dangers of rock music. If I'm not mistaken, I think they should remember. Yeah. Maybe a very, well, actually they did show him because he wore the cross earring. And I remember, uh, you know, the, the, the host of hell's bells was very upset about that. That was not, oh. <laughs> I didn't jive with him. Yeah. You know, <laughs> you're right. I think there was like a montage, not a montage, but like a series where they showed different imagery. Yes. And I want to say they showed George Michael with his cross earring, you know? Correct. Yeah. 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 Those are some wonder stories from my end. I, I'm dying to hear yours. No, right? I mean, no, I, it's similar stuff. I mean, you know, the, the vivid recollection of our mom just jamming just jamming to i want your sex uh in the car um in the car and at the house yeah she had that that, like good like hi-fi system at the house she (laughs) played it so loud dude she played it all the time like just all the time and and, you know we're seven and just like well like what's going on here but do you remember you and i kind of formed a little dance to it we were kind of like do you remember that i kind of do yeah yeah Yeah, that was kind of our way of coping with the trauma of how to hear this song over and over again yeah that 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 was always i mean she was funny i mean she loved like rick springfield and i also remember even at like age like eight being like hey mom i I don't think he likes girls and (laughs) right yeah yeah, he was in total denial. It's like, what? No, he, they, that's just his, his sex appeal. You know, that's just, and it's like, mm, I don't know, mom. I don't think he's into you, you know? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You know, at a very young age, but uh, it took a while for that to eventually become confirmed. You're but, pretty observant, T. <laughs> yeah. Right, right, right. But, uh, you know, the, the only other thing I think you got to give a shout out to uh, one of the great television shows. Um, that being Arrested Development, 
and uh, having Michael Sarah play the character of George Michael, you know, is uh, <laughs> that's kind of kind of genius to have that character be named George Michael. I just thought that was really funny. But um, yeah, I mean, listen, when you grow up in the '80s, this is part of uh, pop culture and the sort of transition from Wham into being a solo artist and you know, kind of a bummer how things sort of eventually turned out during the back half of his life. But, you know, clearly during this time, this was a, an artist and a performer and a voice and a style that, uh, you know, was, was, um, a big deal, a very, very big deal. And, uh, why don't we try and figure out, you know, what led to that big deal? Cause this record really was, was just that, uh, here in late 1987. And let's plow through the track by track on faith. Now, be ready. Hey, man, I'm ready because you know what? You got to have faith. And by the way, uh, to that point, there will be no Fred Durst. Uh, as, as much as we both love Fred Durst, um, th- there will be no Fred Durst uh, during the track by track. So. Can we at least debate which version one likes better? Okay. Okay. Let's do it. Okay. Here, All let's right. get to the tracks. All right. Well, listen, you know, there are certain, uh, you know, iconic starts to uh, certain albums. And, you know, we already kind of played the the organ intro during the intro of the episode. But what that takes you into is uh, uh, is is a song that that made the Bo Diddley beat, you know, uh, more famous than than Bo Diddley did himself. And that is track one, Faith. Now, you know, what jumps out at you right away, at least for, for me, because, I mean, we all know this song. This didn't necessarily need to be uh, dove into... Uh, too hard for familiarity, but the production jumped out to me. You know, this is a, this is a very cleanly produced record. And I'm sure a lot of that was intentional. The vocal effect is perfect. There's a tight delay uh, on the vocal throughout the record that really works. And I think that that gets very exemplified here on faith where, um, you know, you get a lot of hearing the voice without any instrumentation and sort of acapella, but you know, I mean, listen, uh, it's a it's a pretty timeless song, but more than anything, Nubs, I mean, again, what an ass, you know, I mean, just what a tight package in those jeans. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's real. You know what I mean? <laughs> I, it's funny because musically it, it is the Bo Diddley beat, but it, it's a hundred percent Elvis to me. The whole thing is Elvis. He's basically doing an Elvis impression the entire song. And I'm not talking about dancing. I'm talking about singing. Yeah, yep. I mean, th- this is an Elvis Presley impression, right? All that kind of staccato thing during the verses, and then he he's he's borderline crooning like George Michael style crooning on the pre-chorus, and then he goes right back into that staccato thing. It, I always loved it because it's the ultimate example. Just you know, you know what I mean? It's it's just that <laughs> to your point, super tight. Everything is so tight. Yeah. On the song, maybe too tight in some ways. It's a little rigid, but oh, uh, that, that ass is tight. I can tell you that much. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> totally. 
but it's straight Elvis. The whole thing is just straight up Elvis. So you can't yeah. forget that in that 1987, we're just not that far removed from someone being heavily influenced by Elvis. I'm sure that yeah. George Michael's parents or other generation above him were directly impacted by Elvis Presley, probably more than any other pop culture person, maybe aside from the Beatles. So that's a big factor here. And it's a, it's basically like a three minute Elvis impression that's going on here. And, and obviously one that really connected with uh, really audiences all over the world. I mean, this was a smash. Yeah, it's a good call. It, it was so this was number one for four weeks. That's a very long time to be number one, especially at this time. Uh, this is ranked the number 322 song of the century. This is by the RIAA. So, you know, a little bit more of a credible uh, outlet than Rolling Stone magazine, I would say, but uh, pretty impressive credential there. You know, what's interesting is um, George Michael wasn't a big lyrics guy. He would actually write the lyrics as he was laying down the vocal line in the studio. He would literally sit there at the microphone and sort of write down lyrics that he thought was either fitting the moment or the mood or the vocal line that he had constructed, which is kind of neat because some of these lyrics, you look at them and you think that maybe they're heavily calculated or whatever. And, you know, he would actually do this kind of on the fly, which, um, which I thought was kind of cool. The song was originally two minutes long and he didn't really think much of it. He thought it was just kind of a quick little ditty to your point, kind of a little tight little Elvis thing. And then, you know, enough people were telling him like, man, I really like that one, that demo of that faith song. So they added the guitar solo and kind of built it out to be an actual, they only added about a minute to it, but enough to make it, you know, actually a full song rather than I think what he originally intended was just a small ditty. I'm pretty sure he's glad he did that. It was number one in the U S um, th- th- there's a theme here of a few of these songs being just enormous in the U S not quite as strong in, in his home country in the UK. Um, and faith was one of them. This actually never hit number one in the UK, um, which is surprising. It actually, uh, it, it, it was in the top 10 in the UK and it was knocked off by a song called you win again by the Bee Gees which is one of my favorites. Oh, you love that song. Dude. Oh yeah. <laughs> yeah. You're a but, huge. but a song that was never really that popular in the U S. So it was kind of interesting the way the uh, UK and the U S charts, you know, sort of interact, but Th- this album is very American. You know, this is not yeah. a European record yeah. in terms of its tone and its sound, its themes. You know, I think this album was, and again, I'm not saying intentionally. So who knows, but, it's flooded with way more American influences than it is European influences. That that's for damn sure. And that's, I think that's why it connected so well with the market. That's a great point. That's a great point. Well, the next track is, is along that, those same lines of, of being tremendously popular in the U S it was one of the four number one singles. And, uh, and one of those four uh, certainly hit home here on track two with father figure. So to your point, you know, this is certainly, uh, you know, a a U.S. um, sort of mid-tempo 
pop song. I, I think the original idea that he had was for this to be kind of like more of an up-tempo, like a dance track. And, uh, you know, I'm not sure if he eventually changed his mind or was sort of advised that this would be better as a more sort of spacey, strung out pop song. It's a unique track of its time to where, you know, there isn't this um, big sort of backbeat. There's a lot of sweeping elements in terms of keyboard layers. I really like the synth sound. You know, I think it's really strong. And it's a perfect vocal, both with effect and performance to kind of lay down on top of this. I, I think this is a fantastic song. I've always loved it. Um, the middle section's really good. The way it closes out is great. Some great vocal performances. This isn't the one I'm referring to where you can't deny that he is a, a strong vocalist. But man, I, I think Father Figure is kind of a perfect 80s pop song, a great track to hear. I don't know, Nub. Thoughts? I, you know, I think first and foremost, remove the lyrics and it is a gorgeous melody. I mean, those verses, that little piano that's in the background, it, yeah. it, that, what a great layer. Yeah. And I have to think that might, might've been Michael, you know, I mean, I think he plays keyboards on this song and uh, it's such a beautiful little thing that they put in the background. I, I like that. It's, it's one of the first hit singles I remember that really took advantage of space. Right. You know, it's a really spacious song. It's ambient. It's just beautiful. It really is it's a beautifully written song. The problem is that lyrically it's kind of, kind of a creeper. <laughs> I don't think this song would have flown in 2021. I don't, I don't think this would have made it through, you know, kind of the, uh, shall we say the political correctness meter? I don't, I don't think every song in this album would have made it through. Uh, <laughs> right. Yeah. <laughs> right. Yeah, true. That's part of what's fun about this. It's like, you could never make an album like this now. I mean, and wait till we get to the next track. I mean, you, you just couldn't do it. Correct. And yeah. nor is it like to be that literal and that, you know, in some ways, lyrically graphic is not the current direction. Um, it's all metaphoric and it's all, you know, story based. I mean, this is as blunt as it gets. And, and yeah, I agree with you. There are, there are a lot of lyrical tones on this that wouldn't hold up, but man, I'm with you. I mean, what a gorgeous pop song. Amazing. Yeah, it really is. And, and again, like I mentioned earlier too, T, like as a kid, I, I didn't get it. It was too much for me. It was too heavy. It was too deep. Years later, when I was kind of rediscovering this album, I was like, this song is incredible, you know? Yeah. And, and I'm not even saying the lyrics are a problem or a distraction because you get older, you kind of understand what he's, where he's going here. I just don't think it would have been able to be released today, but you know, there's a lot of things that you can't do today. Right. So uh, in terms of <laughs> true, in terms of, you know, it's role on this album and it's role as a very, very unique part of the eighties kind of music history, you know, I, I just, I love it. I, I think it's a spectacular song. I'm glad to hear that. I, I've, we see that one the same way. And uh, yeah, I think it's a, I think it's a perfect 80s song. All right. Let's see if you think this one is perfect. I want your sex. Oh boy. <laughs> that 
it's that melody right there. Oh, it's that it's, melody. It's, it's the whole thing. The way it starts, you know, with that ding do baba, but ding do baba, you know that beat. Yeah, yeah. It's just, it's just all so wrong. I mean, it's just so wrong, <laughs> but so right. You know, at the same time. I mean, it's it's such a fun, it's such a fun listen now because. Again, like you just could never do this today. Yeah. Um, it was so edgy. It was so um, unapologetic. And it holds up very weirdly well. It's nine minutes long. So basically there's a part one and part <laughs> That's two. That's what I remember. It never and ends. Yeah. It, it just never ends. Now there's a part two, which which we'll get to. But um, this song's weirdly important in, in the way that it, really just directly and graphically and unapologetically kind of stretch the bounds. It's an interesting composition. It's kind of silly in a way, but also musically kind of interesting. I mean, there's the the sort of groove and that sort of, I don't know, man, it's, it's a peculiar song, but uh, one that if you didn't already get it during the first two tracks that George Michael was here to do something that was, pretty in your face um it was this the song met no surprise plenty of controversy it was it was limited on bbc radio to certain day parts um due to the uh they they said it was the suggestive nature i don't think there's anything suggestive about it you know it's i want your sex let's go (laughs) father figure was suggestive this this is like kt didn't i don't know if this is even accurate but I, i remember hearing at some point didn't he like reject the song almost immediately after the album came out. Like, didn't he, didn't he hate it? So it was an interesting, um, it was an interesting time period because you got to remember that this was during the height of AIDS awareness and, you know, out comes this song. That's basically, um, you know, talking about casual sex being not just appreciated, but pretty heavily desired. To the point where I remember, I'm sure you remember too, George Michael had to do a little. Oh, the disclaimer. Um, disclaimer before yeah, the video. That's right. You yeah, know, so, the, yeah. so they ran the video for a short period of time and there was, there was a lot of backlash and a lot of, of it had to do with, hey, we're out here trying to promote this message around AIDS awareness and, and having safe sex and being careful and all these type of things. And then, you know, you're coming out here with this huge hit song that's essentially shredding a lot of that. So he actually did a little spoken disclaimer that basically, you know, I, I remember the, I remember the, the key part to his disclaimer was this song is not about casual six. <laughs> and, and it was like, Oh really, George, then what's it about? Exactly. You know? Yeah. Right. Yeah. <laughs> what are you metaphoring here? You know, it was essentially uh, like, you know, d- enjoy the song and do what you want to just use protection while you do it Buy my record, but use protection while you buy it. <laughs> yeah something like that yeah, yeah pr- pretty much pretty much i mean it was a there were a lot of things going on culturally at the moment that were certainly interesting but it it didn't limit the appeal for this song in any way and it's just very it's very very 80s i mean this is just again something that you just couldn't you know sort of pull off today nubs musically you know silliness aside what do you think of this? There's 
synth and there's keys and there's, you know, electronics going on. I mean, what do you think? Or do you just think it's kind of goofy? Well, it's certainly goofy. If you don't, if you don't see that, then you don't have much of a sense of humor, but I, I kind of put this in the category. There's, there's small category songs like, like uh, Genesis. I can't dance where the whole song is just built around this beat. And it's almost like, yeah, they, you hit on something that's just so catchy and you're just like, I can do anything on top of this. And then they literally do. And in both cases, the lyrics just kind of take this otherwise punchy, memorable pop sensibility and, and make it a little bit absurd in two yeah. totally different directions. But same idea. I just, you know, when by all accounts of Genesis wrote, I can't dance. They just set the drum box to do, you know, and then they. It's a just, great comparison, actually. Yeah. Well, Nubs, you think we're done with I Want Your Sex? You think we're done? We're not even close to done. We still got part two. Hit it. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, this goes on. (laughs) This this right here goes on for like five more minutes. (laughs) And it breaks down and it, you know, kind of like, but I mean. (laughs) Um, so, so tell me, do you, do you think part one is kind of, um, like is part one kind of like the, the foreplay and then part two is where you're just getting busy. Is that kind of how this works? Wow, that, that's, man, that's a great thought. I mean, just, just think about it. Just like, the, just, just think about it. Like you had the prelude and then now it's, you know, <laughs> right. Just, yeah. Yeah. I kind of setting the stage. I'm glad, I'm glad nobody can see what we're doing right now. And then it's like, boom, da, 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 and then the horns, like the, the fake horns just all kind yeah. of, those yeah. might be real actually. There are guys playing real horns. They, they probably are real at that yeah. time. Yeah. yeah. But yeah, it's, it's, it's a totally absurd song, but the rhythm is I, the guy wrote amazing hooks musically and vocally. I mean, the main hook of the song might be, Come on. Yeah, exactly. And think about just like going back to Father Figure, just think about the last like 30 seconds of that song. You know, trademark conclusion. Like there he put hooks into everything. Faith has 10 hooks in that song. So, you know, artistically, maybe one of the to go back to your earlier question, maybe one of the the issues with him artistically is that he was just he was so hooky that um, sometimes, you know, you, you don't realize someone's making this stuff up and, uh, he was, he was very gifted at that for sure. Obviously Kurt Cobain disease, right? You, you, you got, right. you got all these hooks and no place to go and no place to go. <laughs> yeah. All right, man, this is the song. Now I want you to make the case after this, that George Michael isn't an exceptional vocalist here on yet another number one single off this record with one more try. So you, you, you know, you, you've kind of, you've kind of touched on this a couple times here so far. There are these songs that, you know, when you're seven, 
you kind of think are kind of dumb. This is like old people music, right? And then you're a teenager and you think they're even dumber. You know, it's like, man, this is like, ooh, my mom used to listen to this, you know? And then you're in your 20s and you're kind of like, okay, sort of, sort of get it. And then you're, you know, where we are, you know, in your uh, early 30s. That's where we are, right? (laughs) Yeah, I wish. And you listen to something and you're like, "Mm, okay, like, that's good. Really, my one more try is not really my style. It's it's slow, um, but I I do, you know, used a great word earlier with father figure space, and I know that you're a fan of space. And if you are, then you know you got to at least appreciate that of one more try. And it's not as boring. I used to think this is a very boring song, but as you listen to kind of the the vocal element and how it builds, and I don't think it needs to be six minutes long, which it is. But part of that is the sort of drawn out nature of it and sort of building you to this place where, I mean, this is all George, this is all vocal. I mean, what's going on in the background is pretty minimalist and pretty spacious. Um, So it really relies on a very, very unique, I mean, not, there are only a few uh, vocalists, I think that could pull this song off, you know, you got to be able to carry it. And, uh, and he did, and it's a great hit. And it's a song that I now have. I wouldn't say that I love it, but I sure as hell have an appreciation for what it is um, that that at least I didn't have before. So, Nubs, make the case. Why is George Michael not that great of a singer after hearing One More Try? Well, I will say it's it's the most outstanding vocal performance on the album. Just the way he goes in and out of the falsetto is, you know, it's very effective. I still think it's it's in a pretty limited range. I mean, he does... You there's know, no doubt about that. He's not, you know, loaded yeah. with range. There's, there's no question. Yeah. Yeah. But, but without, without a doubt, it's a, it's a very notable vocal performance. It's, it's a fascinating single. I do love the space. The space brings out all the little intricate layers. This album has tremendous intricacies in it. Um, I, I remember the, uh, if you ever saw the seven inch single, this was, was notable too. It was a long song, but the cover of it, I don't know if you ever saw this, but the cover art was just like, it was like a beige sleeve. And on the front, all it said was one more try, period. It didn't say anything. It didn't say his name or anything like that. And on one hand, it's a a little pretentious. On the other hand, you know, maybe maybe it was, there's a statement being made just about that this song should just sort of, you know, speak for itself in a way, you know? Hmm. But I, I think in terms of the album, Right. We could talk about the song for a long time. And in terms of the album, it rounds out this, you know, epic four song run. Yeah. Where you just get a little bit of everything. You know, you really do. And this is obviously more of the ballad type of deal. And I'm with you, T. I didn't, I didn't like the song growing up. I, I, I agree. I thought, thought it was boring. In the last week, listening to this, to this album nonstop, I do have an appreciation for it. I don't know that I'd want to drive around listening to it a whole lot, but I really appreciate it. And I appreciate the fact that a song like this could have been a hit in 19, you know, 87, 88. That, that's a pretty cool thing. So, yeah. Yeah. For me, it's definitely a song you file into, you know, rolled my eyes at it when I was young and now you listen to it and you really appreciate it. So that's good. Yeah. To hear. Good call. Yeah. Well, that, that's, uh, I mean, that faith father figure, I want your sex and one more try that cannot sustain. And let's just pause there for a second, which I think you make a great point. That is a, 
Uh, I mean, really, it's the first side of the record, and and that's a that's an incredible side. Um, now, three of those songs were number one, and I mean, can you imagine in 1987 when people flip the record and just absorb side A, and they're like, "Wow, you know, a lot of things here that you hadn't heard before, a lot of boundaries being pushed, a lot of edginess." Um, a really, really nicely and interestingly produced and performed record that can't sustain though. It's not like you can <laughs> have a side B that's, that's quite that good, but there, there had to be a moment here where you're kind of flipping the record saying, wow, I just heard something that's pretty, uh, pretty special. You're not going to stay that hot for the whole game. <laughs> I mean, it's a <laughs> right. blistering start, but yeah, you, it, at some point a little cool off was, uh, was needed. I think. Indeed. We get to that cool off here on the inside too with uh, some deep, we get into some album tracks here with Hard Day. You know, some of, some of these things, um, they, they start to sound a little dated, but, um, the thing that's kind of interesting about hard day is that you, you could hear five seconds of it and realize that it's George Michael. So whether you kind of like it or not, or again, whether it holds up to the first four songs, there is a very distinct sound here, uh, through the electronic elements, through the vocals, through the vocal effects. And like, I don't think it's, I mean, obviously, you know, it doesn't hold up as well as the first four tracks, and it's more of an album cut, but I do like that if you were to even hear this on its own, it would play for five seconds and you'd be like, oh, that's George Michael. I think there's something, you know, that's positive about that in a way. It's a great take. This is his signature sound on this album, you know, and he does explore different things as we've already talked about, but it's that big danceable backbeat. You know, it, it's, it's very, it's not really toe tapping. It's like shoulder swaying. You know, that's kind of the way I would describe George Michael's sound. You know what I mean? <laughs> By the way, I got to tell everybody, when Nub said that, he gave a little shoulder shimmy, and I got to say, he looked, it looked pretty good. It looked pretty good. Did it look good as, well, as good as his ass looked in the Faith video? Or, no. Know, that's impossible. No, not that good. But but you've you got some moves over there, buddy. Don't sell yourself short. <laughs> yeah. Well, you think about his sound, it's just... You know what I mean? Like every song could, could do that. And it's just got a little tiny bit of swing, but it's really, really rigid. And can you do that again? That was great. Just, well, I don't want to confuse it with the Prince sound, which is. The George Michael sound is like. You know? And then he's going, Jumbo John Lowe, don't bet me down. Totally, yeah. Yeah. Well, that's pretty solid. Pretty, pretty well done there. Let's get to track six hand to mouth. Okay, see, I got to point a couple things out. Sure. There, there's two ripoffs in this song <laughs> that I've discovered. And I, dude, I looked on the internet. I'm amazed. I didn't see anybody else. Now, one of them's 
George Michael ripping off. And then one of them is somebody ripping off George Michael. Right. So do me a favor. Just play the very beginning of the song. I want you to hear the intro and then you'll, you'll hear what I'm talking about. Okay. And pay attention to the piano melody. Great electronic drums. <laughs> totally. Okay, so you got that piano melody in your head? Yep. All right, now pull up. People at home following along. Pull up <laughs> Kate Bush. Wow. <laughs> I knew you're you gonna were going to be gonna wowed. I knew you were going to find a way to work Kate Bush into this episode. I just knew. <laughs> I think George Michael was a big fan of Kate Bush. It may be too big of a fan as you're about to hear. Ooh. Yeah, that's a direct ripoff. Now, Wow is one of my favorite Kate Bush songs. And when I and, was first. And Beaks, too. Yeah, Blake. Yeah, and that's right. Beaks loves, loves yep. Wow. Yep, she did. And that intro for Wow is, you know, it's a, that's one of Kate Bush's greatest melodies. It's very famous for Kate Bush fans. Hmm. And I'm listening to this and I'm like, that is, that's Wow. So then I looked and I'm like, oh, he lifted it. Cool. Like, I'm sure there's a credit. You know, there's no credit. There's no acknowledgement. I looked it up on the internet. I, I've, I've seen nobody make this connection, but T, it is the same exact melody. I, we should do like yeah. two twins in an album investigates. <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> I mean, I'm telling you, you, you're I, I even, I even think, I mean, again, just judging by ear, I, I think they're the same notes and it's, I think the it's same the same notes in the same key, man. Yeah. Well, I think you're onto something there. Amazing. Okay. The other one is a reverse ripoff, but this one's even more kind of funny and ridiculous. So go back to the core baseline during the, the verses. Right. Do, 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 do. Now play a little song called Neighbor by Ugly Kid Joe. <laughs> it's the same riff, dude. Listen to it. <laughs> it's the same riff. I, I think like like fifty others have used that progression. I mean, <laughs> well, it's probably right. Yeah. There's that's like uh, yeah, that's a pretty common. You know, one of the things I always loved about Ugly Kid Joe was the left-handed guitar player. I don't know for some reason I thought he was super <laughs> yeah. cool. It's an awesome super call. And Whitfield Crane. Whitfield Crane, by the way, is like a very accomplished vocalist. Like he. Yeah. he yeah, I mean, he was like a legit, like classically trained singer and all that. Absolutely, yeah. I I saw him play once. He joined Life of Agony for like a tour when Life of Agony was between singers, and Whitfield Crane was like a maniac on the stage. I don't know if you ever saw him, but it was it <laughs> was, was it? Oh my, he was nuts, like legitimately nuts. But yeah, so Ugly Kid Joe, I'm telling you, man, they must they must have been sitting around listening to a lot of George Michael uh, Faith. You know, <laughs> well, they you can really hear listen, the direct influence. They may have. I mean, you know, Fred Durst was so, you know, right. You know what? Who's to say Ugly Kid Joe wasn't weren't also fans, you know, and that one, that one's more just funny. Right. I mean, it is the same progression, but the Kate Bush one. I mean, I got to tell you, it that's it. He lifted it. Yeah. And nobody yeah. ever noticed. That's how yeah. obscure Kate Bush is. No yeah, one ever that, noticed. That's a lift. I'm surprised, particularly in the UK. I'm surprised nobody noticed that. But uh, 
Well, good eye, Nubs. Uh, you know, uh, a private eye over there. And uh, and you're right. Yeah, two twins in an album investigates. Maybe that'll be our first. Maybe you could fulfill your lifelong dream of getting Kate Bush on the show and you can uh, present to her your case. And then you guys can run off together and get married and um, live off in the hills somewhere in the English countryside. How's that sound? You know, I, I would be interested in all of that. And it wouldn't be for me, it'd be for Blake. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah, 100%. (laughs) And if you don't know what we're talking about, go back and listen to the Kate Bush Hounds of Love uh, episode and you will fully understand what we're talking about. Indeed. Our, Our special guest, our special guest. Track seven, look at your hands. You gotta love that, like, compressed guitar thing i mean it's <laughs> yeah totally it's so funny I, I mean not a terribly memorable track here obviously this run of these three songs is you know you're getting into the sort of deep cuts on faith um so you know it's, it's not anything terrible but it's not anything terribly memorable but uh you know it's a little groovy i think kind of like some of that some of that guitar work i'm sure i'm sure some killer session musician hit the compression pedal and laid that sucker down for him huh <laughs> yeah, totally. Or shoot, you never know. Maybe George Michael played that himself, you know, as talented as he was. He was I, exactly. I mean, the guy could do a little bit of everything. It's definitely filler alert here, right? On this on this particular track. Yeah, but I think what stands out is that George is really he's thinking a lot about hands. You know, you go hand to mouth, look at your hands. <laughs> this guy's really the hands. Yeah. Put your tiny hand in mine, father figures. Well, it's also, I I think it's a good point to note, you know, if if we didn't really talk a lot about the album cover, but we did talk about the stubble and the earring and the leather jacket, but you know, is he smelling himself on the cover? That's, (laughs) it looks like he's doing like a pit check, you know, like a, you know, one of those, before you go on the date, you just give yourself a little. Just a little whiff to make sure that the the deodorant <laughs> settled in properly. It's yeah. is that what he's doing? I mean, he's kind of lifting the jacket, looking like he's going for a little sniff. What do you think? So it could be a sniff check. It's a. <laughs> I think it's probably a little more likely that it's it's some Columbia uh, Records staff photographer saying, "Hey, just lift your jacket up a little bit, just so we can see a little bit of your chest." Right. You know? Yeah. Let's just get a little, just get a little tease in here for everybody. You know, I think it's one of those. I mean, nobody, I think nobody ever really looked at it because it's just like, Oh, he's sexy. And there he is. Um, but if you really look at it, I, I think he's doing a pit check. <laughs> Dude, you could be right. So w- this has been a productive two twins in an album. We've uncovered that George Michael is immensely talented that he rips off Kate Bush and that he does pit checks regularly. Yeah. And that he so much so that they had to capture him on, on film. It's like, guys, we don't have any pictures of George where he's not smelling his pits. Yeah. He's also clutching something with his left hand. Um, I can't really tell. It looks like he's maybe just clutching his jacket. jacket. I don't know. It's his jacket. He's, you know what I think he's doing T. Okay. Again, some staff photographer. I think what he's doing there is, they wanted to get the cross earring in the picture. Mm-hmm. So I think what he's actually doing is pulling down that side of his jacket ah. because you got to get the cross earring in there. Yeah. If not, I think it'd be blocked in that cross earring. 
was clearly going to become a big part of his brand. We've referenced it many times, you know? Yeah. Interesting. That's my thought. Well, as we keep picking apart the George Michael album cover, yeah, yeah. let's listen to Monkey. Yeah, so, you know, I, apparently uh, George was like, all right, that's enough deep cuts. Let's let's hit him with one more number one here, uh, second to last track, and did so with Monkey. This was a huge song, um, number one in the U.S., rounded out the uh, four number ones on the record, you know, big time dance track. Seems like, it seems like it kind of combines, you know, it takes all the different elements, you know, of the previous songs, you know, the space, the up-tempo-ness, the sort of bounce, uh, and then obviously a vocal and lyric performance that's pretty memorable. So not terribly surprising that this was a big hit. Um, and, you know, for second to last track, probably one that after three kind of album cuts, and I agree with you on filler alert on Look at Your Hands, you know, probably was important to the record to kind of throw this, you know, just hit them with one more number one on the on side B just so, you know, uh, just so side B doesn't become the, uh, complete JV to side one. And, uh, so probably important that monkey made the appearance on this when it did. I actually really kind of love monkey. When I was a, a kid, I was so confused by it. Like, why is this guy singing about the monkey? Like, I don't you know, <laughs> like the animal. It's probably good that at that time you were confused more. So, I mean, if you were like, oh, I get it. Like at seven, <laughs> yeah, probably right. would have been kind of concerning. Yeah. The, the beat is very infectious. It's certainly dance floor. This album was just very, very confusing as a kid. And this added to it. It's like, wait a minute. So this guy talks about faith of faith of faith. And then he wants sex. And then he does this like crying during one more time. And then he's talking about your know, father figures and tiny hands covers the gamut. Doesn't it buddy? Yeah. Now he's talking <laughs> about monkeys. It's like, what the hell is wrong with this guy? You know? So yeah, it, it's, it's, it's a fascinating album to rediscover as an adult. I mean, we touched on it earlier. It, it's, and it's recommended that people rediscover it as an adult. Cause you, you know, for those of us that grew up in this era, it, it's a totally different perception that you'll have of this record than, you know, what you thought at seven or eight or nine, you know? Well, and as if, you know, as if it wasn't already, you know, well-rounded or covering the gamut enough, you know, you get a little bit of old school flavor here on the closing track, which is Kissing a Fool. Why does every singer at some point have to like do their Tony Bennett thing? You know, like yeah. it's why it's, I don't, I don't get it. Is, isn't it, isn't it something though, that on the same album you have, I want your sex and then you have this. I mean, yeah, it is. I don't yeah. know. I don't know if that's just insane or if that's like super cool. I mean, it, maybe it's somewhere in the middle. The the vocals were recorded a cappella, you know, which is interesting. Lyrically, you know, again, Monkey and this are really talking about, you know, sort of his 
fame and his reputation and you know how he's not sure he can find proper love because of his rep. I mean, it's 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 pretty deep and pretty soulful and pretty interesting. Now, I, I don't particularly like it. Um, I think a lot of people did. I think a lot of you know George Michael fans really see this as a moment to kind of get an idea for his full artistry. This I mean, is see, it was a single. I, amazingly yeah, enough, last it, single on the record. Like, who would have thought? It sure was. I mean, it reached 29th on the uh, Billboard Adult Contemporary. So, I mean, it definitely was a, a song that moved a bit. Um, Michael Bublé covered it on his um, one of his early albums. It's incredible the diversity of this record. And I think rounding it out in this fashion with not a song that I particularly like, but one that kind of gives you one last, hey, I'm doing this my way and I'm doing this in a way that's trying to cover a lot of different bases, but do it genuinely. Um, you have to kind of respect. And I think that that's sort of part of what land, what, what led to this song sort of landing um, certainly commercially in a way, but, but critically uh, in a way from not just his fans, but from clearly some other crooners that sort of respected, you know, George Michael as a vocalist. I, I mean, T, you've done a great job all episode of making the case for him as an artist. And this, this just kind of confirms that it's really interesting that he would do it. And, uh, you know, some of it might be that they just knew they had a hit machine here. So, Hey George, you know, <laughs> yeah, this track can be yours. Do, do whatever you want. you want. Yeah. But let's just assume that's the case. And for him to choose to do that is it gives him a ton of credibility trying to make the case of him as a artist that should be deeply respected by all music fans. It's, it's an easy case to make after you listen to this album top to bottom. Now, maybe not if you just know faith and I want your sex from the radio, but when you listen to the record and and you kind of hear how it concludes again, I don't like it. I don't like that. All these singers have to do their, their, uh, you know, the Tony Bennett moment. Yeah. But it's very respectable. And, and he does a, a, an exceptional job with the performance on it for sure. Well, that rounds it out, buddy. George Michael Faith, 1987, um, certainly with the exception of Jagged Little Pill, the most, the, the best selling and most commercially successful record that we have discussed. No, did it matter? It mattered on a variety of fronts. It launched, you know, a career that I don't think hit its potential, right? I really don't. I don't think George Michael hit his potential throughout the ensuing, you know, decades of his career. One of the reasons why I think it really matters is because it was so edgy, you know, and that's just the word I would use to describe this record top to bottom. It's just a very edgy album. It was on the edge of what the pop mainstream can handle, what the dance floor can handle, what radio can handle, what record sales can handle. And it dabbled in all these different edgy aspects brilliantly. And that's why I think it rose to the level that it did in terms of commercial success. I also think it's a great example of, of this element we've talked about a few times on the podcast, which is controversy sells, you know, and with the whole deal with, I want your sex and the edits and the, the disclaimer and the video and all that. I mean, it just, all that did was boost awareness of this album and boost the kind of the uh, demand for it. And so I think you had a lot of other copycats come along and try and manufacture controversy. I don't think George Michael was doing that at all. I think it was part of his artistic just sensibility to, it was authentic. Let's just say that it was an, it was an authentic artistic thing for him to be controversial. 
And that helped. So I, I think for both of those reasons, I think it matters a ton. What do you think, man? Does it matter? Yeah. I mean, I don't think you sell 25 million copies of a record and in some way or another, it didn't matter. Some more than others there, Doris, but, but obviously, um, I, I think you make a great point. You know, the, the statement that this was making, you know, you see this story happen a lot where there's, you know, a group and then an artist, you know, decides to branch off from that group and, and become a solo artist. And, they sort of feel the need to do it in a big, bold, grand way. Oftentimes that can come across uh, as ingenuine or that can come across as, uh, you know, being forced or, or being too much of a think tank or, or, you know, something that came out of a focus group rather than an artist. The thing that's cool about revisiting faith is that you do realize that this is coming from the artist. You know, this is um, an artist kind of saying, you know, Hey, I know I've done what I've done before, but you know, with my solo project, I'm going to write differently. I'm going to record differently. I'm going to produce differently. And I think that what really shines here is, is George Michael's production, you know, just as much as the songwriting, the sort of cleanness, the, the tightness, uh, of the approach. Um, you know, obviously when you're trying to pull off some of these songs, you've got to get the tempos, right. You've got to get the synth um, effect, right? You've got to get, you know, the layering, right? If you don't get some of those things correct, it's going to be very difficult. This was a very electronica album at a time where, you know, that was still something that was, it was being done a lot in a pop sense. I mean, he wasn't just creating songs. He was creating, you know, tracks. He was creating. Yeah. Textures. Um, yeah. He, you know, there, there's a difference uh, in the vernacular back then of between a song and a record. And George Michael was making records, you know, and, and I think that that was part of what was cool about the approach and part of what it signaled to the industry is that, you know, you can push the boundaries, you can, you can push right to the edge and still gain a lot of appeal. I think you make a great point on this being a, an adult album. This was not one that, you know, screaming teenage girls were going to the arena to watch George Michael. This was moms and, uh, you know, and people that, you know, um, sort of understood, uh, a lot of the content and a lot of the approach and a lot of this sort of vibe of it. And it, it certainly hit at a good time. It's not an album that could have been made now, but boy, part of me kind of misses the days when you could make an album like this and people wouldn't take it too seriously and people would have fun with it. And, uh, it wouldn't get and offended I, by it. Yeah. Yeah. It wouldn't find a way to get offended or uh, triggered or uh, find fault with it. Instead, you just kind of understand that it's something that uh, is meant to create a certain vibe and maybe make you, you know, think or appreciate music in a different way. Um, but mostly something to kind of have fun with. I think there's a lot of fun on the record. And I long for the days when, uh, you know, an artist can come out with something again like faith, which, uh, pushes the boundary so hard. And instead of, uh, you know, finding fault or being resistant, uh, people can find a way to just enjoy it. And I just want to make very clear to you. I am very triggered by this album by George Michael's ass. <laughs> triggers me. It triggers a lot of things. Are we all buddy? Let's get to the final cut. Are you putting this one on the turntable in the collection, collecting dust or in the for sale bin. Where do you got faith, buddy? I'm excited for this one. What do you See, think? I, yeah, I'm putting faith on the turntable. It is just... Yo! Yeah, right. you talk about an album that 
really represents the 1980s in a way that is not just popular, but cutting edge, right? And I think you just nailed it. Push the boundaries. And by pushing the boundaries musically, lyrically, in terms of image, in terms of you know, themes, I think that Faith stands as an album that not only must be owned, but is something that still holds up incredibly well top to bottom to listen to. A fun record. It's an interesting record. It's an engaging record. You, you listen to it, you're engaged on what's going on. And yeah, it's, it's got a couple of things that, you know, maybe a little excessive, maybe a little outdated, but even those things have their charm, right? Because to your point, it was a time period where he could do it and not just get away with it, but succeed from it. And you, know, you got to love that. So Let it, me it's on you, the turntable for me too. That's great. Let me ask you this. How does I want your sex sound on wax? Sounds really good, actually. Do you have a good copy of this? I have a really good copy of this. Actually, in in terms of vinyl nerds, (laughs) you're going to just think this is so ridiculous, but I'm used to it. If you could find, you know, an original pressing that's still in the shrink wrap, that's a good thing. Okay. If you find original shrink wrap and hype sticker, then you're golden. My version of Faith has shrink wrap and hype sticker <laughs> and the and the vinyl's in perfect shape. I wish you all could see the excitement in Nugs' face <laughs> as he describes <laughs> the hype sticker. It's just, it's like, it's just, it's adorable. He's just so happy. The hype sticker uh, gets me almost as excited as George Michael's. Ah, you know. Yeah, what. that's right. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. All right. Well, I'm going in the collection. It's, it's, uh, it's a classic. It's, you know, the, that three song run. On side B just takes it out of the turntable for me. And it's not that they're bad songs. It's, you know, and we've talked about this before. Sometimes, you know, a record is so hot for a sequence that it's not that the other songs are bad. It's just that, you know, it's impossible to sustain that. So sometimes you can be sort of your own worst enemy in that way. But listen, this is a, an album that I think has a lot of importance. The boundary pushing was important. I have mad respect for the fact that he wrote and produced the record. I think that that's uh, very, very noteworthy and certainly was one of the things that jumped out at me early on and kind of assessing whether or not this would be a good one to discuss. And uh, Nubs, I think you nailed it uh, top to bottom. I'm just going in the collection mostly because I, I think that uh, there's an element of that trifecta of deep cuts that can be a little bit of a grind, but not enough to take it any lower than that. And I'm sure you're deeply offended that he ripped off Kate Bush too. Well, listen, that was a, that was very eye opening. I think, uh, I think we should think about this thing. You know, let's, let's, let's get in touch with Kate Bush's people and see if we can bring this to her attention. Kate Bush, please call me. If you're out there listening, (laughs) please call me so we can discuss. I've been wanting to play matchmaker with you and Kate Bush for many years. Nubs, <laughs> hey, what do you say? I think we need to ice down a little bit here and uh, cool down the episode a little bit with some uh, some in your head. What do you got, Dolores? Let's go. In your head, in your head. Nub, what's in your head? Teach just three things, uh, songs that have come across the old uh, playlist that I've been enjoying this past week. First of all would be uh, the song Shatterday by Vendetta Red. The major label band that didn't really take off, but Shatterday was sort of a very mild radio hit. It's very good. Second would be the Moody Blues, some of their 80s output. I know you're out there somewhere. Very, very good Moody Blues track. 
Great yeah, song. and then Lassie is a live. I actually version. always preferred. You're either kind of a I know you're out there somewhere guy or a uh, your wildest dreams guy. I've always been an I know you're out there somewhere kind of guy. Oh, nice. Yeah, yeah. I'm definitely your wildest dreams guy, but I like them both for sure. Yeah, they're both great. They really are. And last is a live version of the song Gravity Grave. This is by The Verve. This version is found on the No Come Down compilation. And it is an awesome live version of Gravity Grave. It's huge. And Ashcroft is just, you know, thankfully he, he didn't have his mysterious non-death at this point. It's, uh, you know, it's good that he got some, it's good that he got some songs like that out before his uh, untimely passing. Yeah, his untimely non-death. T, what is in your head? I got an old country song by Jerry Jeff Walker called Pissin' in the Wind. Um, my kids love it. I love it. It's a great song. I probably shouldn't play it for my kids, but it's <laughs> it a great kid song. <laughs> yeah. You know, I've never been terribly good at parenting. Uh, second song is by XTC. And this is uh, the mayor of Simpleton off the uh, Oranges and Lemons record. Wonderful album. That's a band we have to talk about at some point i think so that'd be good yeah be good yeah i think they'd be good to talk about and then uh, let's also throw in there just a little song by a couple ladies known as heart and uh one of their i i like 80s heart i, I like 80s pop you know big Anne. i like the big Anne era of heart. <laughs> yeah yeah and uh one of the songs from them i love called nothing at all uh nubs thanks man what a what a fascinating discussion about George Michael's faith and uh, really appreciate all your, uh, all your great takes. That was good stuff, man. Love the choice as always. And uh, you know, may- maybe now you won't accuse me of being so biased all the time, you know? I mean- hey, listen, <laughs> you gave this one, you gave this one a extremely great, uh, great and fair assessment. I mean, and it's not just cause you put on the turns table. I just, just really, Listen, Nub, sometimes I you're just always your, give fair assessment. Listen, I always so, give fair assessment. Sometimes you're just on your A game. And today, man, you just brought it. You brought it. <laughs> well, I was inspired by George Michaels. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Well, listen, that, that caboose is. Uh, That's a nice one. It's a tight one. It is. It's a tight pack. Hey, uh, let's see if you bring your A game on episode 58, which we will be back with next week. But until then, we hope you enjoyed Heinz 57. Sauce. And what really is in that sauce? I know there's ketchup. Saucy. I'm sure there's some Worcestershire and some other things, but who cares about that? All we care about right now is wrapping up episode 57, and we will see you next week on Two Twins and an album. Y'all take care. Two Twins. Well, that's about it. That's all we have. I hope it wasn't too disappointing. We will see you on tour. Until then, take it easy.